So, how to have a contemplative life. It's not a sermon title you would necessarily expect to see in a Presbyterian church. Or, alternate title, how to grow as a Christian. That's more normal, I guess. Last week we looked at Psalm 8. This magnificent psalm of David, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we saw David thinking about some really deep things, important things. First about God and his majesty, how he is above every other little g God that's out there because of all that he's done and all that he's created. And then David had some really deep thoughts about humanity. First, how terribly insignificant and small man must be in light of who God is. But then, because of God's mindfulness of man, because of the glory with which he created man and woman in his image, obviously on another level, man must be terribly significant. And in the end, I suggested to you how it was that David ended up thinking such deep and important thoughts. Profound things like that in the first place. And I suggested to you that he did so because he took time to contemplate, to consider, to meditate upon who God is and what God has said. And I further suggested to you that our lives ought to mirror that. We ought to devote time, more time than we do, to considering who God is and what he said, what he's done. That it might even impact our devotional life, the way, the way we approach and read Scripture, or rather than reading God's Word, just looking for the rules to keep or the steps to follow. What if we read instead to know a person what if we read God's word instead to, to deepen a relationship? What if we read God's word to immerse ourselves in a story? I want to argue this morning that that is how we will experience real life change. Approaching the scriptures like that is how we will have genuine growth as a Christian. So maybe you, feel, maybe you feel stymied this morning. Maybe you feel stuck, struggling with the same old sins and temptations. You don't see any real progress. I want you to give this a try. What's the worst that could happen? From spending more, from spending quality time in God's Word, reading his word. And we're actually going to practice doing that together this morning. Psalm 8 last week, Psalm 9 this week, and it's actually the perfect psalm to do this little experiment with. To really slow down and contemplate, to consider what it is that we read, uh, to begin to meditate upon what we find. Now, I went back and forth. I debated about whether or not to do this. Sounds kind of weird, right? It's going to make for quite an unusual sermon, no doubt, but 
I got to thinking about two little words in this psalm. One you're probably more familiar with and have seen a bunch of times, the other not as familiar, and neither of which do we know exactly what they mean with great certainty. But they are both very likely words that are pushing us toward this direction of contemplating, of meditating, remembering and considering. And so the more I thought about these two words, the more convinced, and I said, all right, I'm going to go for it. So here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to read the psalm twice. Some of you are looking, you say, wait a minute, this thing has 20 verses. We're going to read it twice? Well, I'm not going to make you stand because we're not going to read it all in one fell swoop. We're going to work through it slowly, and I'm going to make comment along the way. And we're actually going to be making a list along the way while we read. First time through, I want us to make a list, at least a mental list, of everything that we see that describes who God is or what he has done or is still doing. All right, so that's the first reading. The first reading is all about his character and his actions. And that, honestly, that's the main thrust of Scripture anyway. Right? It's all about him. So we're going to do that first, and then we'll go through it a second time. And then that time, we'll be looking at what our lives, as followers of Jesus, what our lives ought to look like, what types of things we ought to be engaged in, growing in, pursuing, in light of who he is and what he's done. Now, right off the bat, I need to point out that most folks start with this second step and may never really do the first step at all. Most folks open up this thing and say, all right, here we go. What am I supposed to be doing? Right? It's an approach that this, this is all about me, right? This is telling me what to do. I, I need to find what it is and, and get after it. How can I be a better person? How can I be a good Christian? But that's putting the cart before the horse, as it always is with the gospel, we're right behavior in any meaningful way only and always follows right belief. Right? Once I get a glimpse, once I begin to grasp who God is and what it is that he's done, all the marvelous things that he's done for me through the glorious gospel of his son Jesus, once I begin to get a small handle on that, then does my life begin to change and then does it begin to exemplify some of the things that we see here in Scripture. This is, in essence, what we've been doing recently in Sunday school with this study of the gospel-centered life. That's all that is about. We did some exercises similar to that this morning. All right, so here's reading number one. We're going to work through it, looking for who God is, what he has done or is doing. Now, if you just can't help yourself, then by all means, take notes. But I'm going to suggest this morning that maybe you don't. I'm going to suggest maybe this morning that you put your pen down and you just fold your hands there in your lap. 
because this isn't ultimately information to be mastered. We're not studying for a test. Let's just soak in this. Let's just let wave after wave wash over our hearts. The Holy Spirit can help you remember what you need to remember. He will call it to mind, I promise. Psalm 9, verse 1. Remember what we're looking for. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. All right, so let's start there. Remember, we're not looking at us yet. We're looking at him this first time through. And so what's the first thing we see? We see him. We see his name there. If you were here last week, it's in all caps, right? The Lord, right? So it's in all caps. That means that's Yahweh. That's the covenant relationship name for the Lord. So right off the bat, we're reminded, all right, this is a God who's in relationship with us. The next thing we see is this is a God who has done wonderful things for his people. All right? Not rocket science yet. We're just making these little observations along the way. Verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So again, similar to what we saw last week, he's most high. He's above all the little g-gods. There's none like him. He's in a class all by himself. Verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. All right, so we'll pause right there. All right, here's a God who's concerned with justice. This came up in Sunday school this morning. He's concerned with justice, and he's also concerned for his people that his people get justice. Right, so he's not concerned about justice in the abstract. He specifically wants to see that his people get justice and not injustice. All right, rest of verse 4. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. So he's on the throne. What does that mean? Well, he's ruling. He's reigning. There's some power here that he has. And while he's sitting on the throne, he's also doing what? He judges. And his judgments are right. They are true. That's what it means to be righteous. They are always right. They are always true. They are never wrong. Verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. So more power that we see here. Sovereign power, in fact, because he's causing some things to happen. He's the driving force behind what is happening here. We see it in verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. So the enemies of God's people, they didn't just have a run of bad luck. They didn't have a run in with karma. No. The Lord did this to them. In defending his people, he ruins their enemies. Verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. All right, so now all of a sudden, everything that we've seen so far takes on an additional layer. All these wonderful things about who he is and what he has done or is doing or will do for his people, there's an eternal nature to this. He'll never stop being who he is. 
he'll never stop doing what he's doing. All right, again, these, these are just waves of truth washing over our hearts. Right? End of verse 7, he has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Right, so we've got this little trifecta here, if you will. We've already seen justice. We've seen righteousness. Now here we have added uprightness, which is closely related, but it's perhaps adding the idea of, of equity, uh, uh, of evenness. There's no caprice. There's no disparity. In our house, Shay and I are often confused, uh, accused we're confused a lot too, but um, we're often accused of a lack of uprightness by our children. Right? There is disparity here. They don't say disparity. He got something to eat that I didn't get. He got to, she got to do something I didn't get to do. We are accused of a lack of uprightness. And chances are there is a lack of uprightness. We're fallible. We don't always get it perfectly even and level and fair. But not God. God's not like that. He always gets it right. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. We, We sang about it beautifully this morning already. He provides refuge, safety, and security. Verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God does not forsake the ones who seek him. So, how might I sit with that truth for a little bit? How might I contemplate that? Really consider it and meditate upon it. Well, here's what I did. As I was working through this, first thing I did, I said, well... If he has not forsaken, then he very likely has done the opposite of forsaken. All right, so I need to know then what it means, number one, to forsake, and what the opposite of that would look like. So I looked it up. I spent some time thinking about it. What does it mean to forsake? Well, first off, it means to leave. You're going to forsake something or someone, you leave them. Okay? God's not going to leave. He's probably going to do the opposite. He's going to, he's going to come to me. Even like we sang about in that new song. Right? If I'm lost, he will come for me. Another thing forsake means is to abandon or to let go. Well, if he's not going to do that, what's he going to do? He's going to hold tight. He's going to cling to me. He will hold me fast. More truth waves just washing over. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. So two things repeated here that we've already seen, his throne and and, and the wonderful deeds that he's done. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so this is definitely wrapped up in his justice. He avenges blood. It makes me think about what we saw back in Genesis 4 when Cain had murdered his brother. 
And it said that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. And the Lord heard it. He's mindful. It will not escape his sight. He knows. He knows us. And he knows what's happening to us. That's reason for great comfort. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of of death. So here we've got a God who sees, he knows, and he's got power to do something about it. Power even over death. Verse 14, that I may, may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. This is a God with salvation. This is a God who saves. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. Hmm. Is this karma at work? Is this just bad luck? No, it's not. We see in verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands, Higayon Selah. All right, now there's a lot here. It starts with he makes himself known. He is a God of self-revelation. He's a God who wants to be known. He makes himself known. And part of the way that he makes himself known is in his judgment of the wicked. It's no twist of fate that has these guys falling in their own pit. The Lord has done this. This is just like what we saw back in Psalm 7. Now, this next to the last word, Higayon. This is one of those words that encouraged me to go ahead and do this weird little exercise. And we don't know with 100% certainty what this word means, but we've got some good clues and we've got some good guesses. Higayon. Matthew Henry says, this is a note that commands special regard. A thing to be carefully observed and meditated upon. Hmm. Calvin says something similar. Higayon denotes something the godly are to fix their minds upon in meditation. So all these truth waves the psalmist has been given us. He punctuates it with Higayon. Think about this. Contemplate these things. And it's immediately followed by the second of the two words in question. Now this one you've seen a bunch. Selah or Selah. We're even less certain on this one about exactly what it means, but the, the, the most literal translation of the word just is pause. Pause. So when I'm reading through the Psalms, I actually try to do that. I don't say the word selah. Instead, I just pause. Now, most likely this was a musical pause. This is a pause in the music, a pause in the singing of this psalm, because remember, these are the songs of the Old Testament church. They were singing these things. So we're going to pause. Now, what good is a pause there? Well, when you pause, you take a moment and you give something time to land, to, to, to sink in. The psalmist says, 
consider this truth about God and consider this truth about God and this is who he is and this is who he is and this is what he does. You need to take a minute. Just sit there for a minute. Let it sink in. Let that wave wash over your heart. If that's really true, what would the implications be? How would things change in your life if this thing is really true? And that's kind of what we're doing with this whole exercise, right? Let's read through these last verses. Verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. So there we see it again. That's that's what we're doing, right? And if it wouldn't be really awkward right now, we would selah, maybe for like five minutes, just to sit with some of what we've read and some of what we've seen, this mental list that we've been making. But that would be awkward. The lasagna would get cold, so we won't do that. So that's the first step of this contemplative approach to Scripture. First step for real life change, honestly. And it wasn't anything fancy, was it? It wasn't complicated. We didn't get out any big, thick commentaries. I mean, I did use a commentary to look up that Haggaiion a bit, but it's not complicated at all. You can do this. Now I want us to zip back through a little quicker. And let us look now at what we are called to do. What should our lives look like in light of who God is and what he's done and what he continues to do? Right? First two verses we'll take together. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, admittedly, This psalm is a bit front-loaded here. We've got a ton, just in these first two verses, of what a changed life ought to look like in light of who God is and what he's done and been doing. If everything we've been talking about so far is true, how's it going to show up in my life? Well, here's the effect it ought to have. All those truth waves washing over our hearts. Effect number one is that we will give thanks. We will be a people who are filled with gratitude. It will be impossible not to be filled with gratitude. We'll give thanks, but it won't be in some perfunctory manner. It won't be out of obligation or a sense of duty of, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to give thanks. No, it's going to come from our hearts. It's going to come from our whole undivided heart it said our affections will be moved toward God and we will respond with thanksgiving next thing I will recount all your wonderful deeds I will there's a bunch of wills here aren't there this actually is an exercise of the will right I'm making a conscious choice to do something to engage in something I'm going to recount I'm going to engage in the very process that we've been talking about. I'm going to choose to live a contemplative life, to approach Scripture that way, to pause, to sila, to slow down and let it sink in. And I'm going to have to slow down 
if I'm going to recount all the wonderful things he's done for me. I'm going to have to slow down and make a list if I'm going to do that. I will be glad. I'm going to be happy. Doggone it. Now this is an interesting one to me. Is this put on a happy face? Right? Fake it till you make it? No. It's, it's the natural and logical outcome of having considered and contemplated and meditated upon who God is and what he's done. Of course gladness will be the end result of that. It should make our hearts deeply happy. But what if it doesn't? Then what? What if we say, honestly, I'm, I'm not rejoicing today. I'm not filled with gladness today. Well, let's contemplate a bit on that. What, what blocks are there to the gladness and to the joy that you should be experiencing? Well, number one, maybe it's been a while since you've done this step one that we did. Maybe it's been a while since you slowed down and purposefully engaged your heart and your mind in considering who God is and what he's done and what he's continuing to do. Maybe it's that. Or maybe it's that I've been looking to other sources for joy and gladness. Maybe I've been drinking from other wells that will never satisfy. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else will satisfy. And this is what we should do for any of these things. If, if we honestly say, oh, I know this is what life is supposed to look like, but it's not looking or feeling like that for me, we ought to slow down and consider what's going on here. Go back to square one. Return to the who and the what of who God is and what he's done. Let's keep going. I will sing praise to your name. So worship, of course, that's going to be a no-brainer for what our life will be filled with when we've spent time considering and contemplating. Now, for time's sake, we're going to skip down a bit. Verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Y'all, there is so much value in slowing down your reading of Scripture and taking some time to think. Because if we're just making a beeline for, all right, what, what is it that I'm supposed to do? I need to do stuff. Let me find it. Let me go do it. If you do that first, number one, you've cut yourself out, off from the power to actually do the thing you're supposed to do. But number two, you're going to miss a whole lot of what is there that you're actually supposed to be doing because some of it has to be inferred. Think about verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold. Now that on the surface doesn't tell us to do anything, does it? But what's implied? What's implied here? If the Lord is a stronghold, then we better get our behinds in the stronghold. I was thinking last night about that, that first traumatic scene in The Wizard of Oz, right? The tornado's coming. Get to the storm cellar, get to the storm cellar. You've got to get in the storm cellar. Proverbs 18.10 the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous do what? They run. 
They run into it. So if I'm reading verse 9, I need to get in the stronghold. And if I want to contemplate even a little bit more about God being a stronghold, one of the things that I ought to consider is what are the pseudo-strongholds that I run to instead? Where do I go when I'm in trouble? What do I do? Friends, this is how you're going to grow. This is how your life's going to change. It takes time. It is a slow cooker. It is not a microwave. Verse 10. We're almost done, I promise. And the food's here. You don't even have to go anywhere soon. Verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. All right, get this. If I know his name, I will trust him. If I engage in step one of this two-part exercise we've been doing, if I'm slowly reading through, I'm compiling a mental list of who God is and what he's done and what he continues to do. That's knowing his name, right? That's what his name is. Who he is, what he's done. If I do that, I will trust in him. And, and think about how often in Scripture we are commanded to trust him. Over and over again. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Believe in his name. So here's the way to be able to obey the very thing we've been commanded to do over and over and over again. We need to know his name. If I seek to know his name, then I will be trusting in him as a natural consequence. Verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned. Tell among the peoples his deeds. And so there it is again. We've got to sing, y'all. We've got to sing. Some of y'all don't sing. I can see it from right up here. Some of you are not singing. And some of you say, well, I don't have a very good voice. God doesn't care. Some of you say, you've got too many new songs, and I don't know how to sing the new songs. Well, guess what? Psalm 96.1. Sing to the Lord a new song. <laughs> it's biblical. You think maybe it's worth the effort to learn a new song for the Lord? All right, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Now, the one who spent time considering and contemplating meditating upon who God is and what he's done, will very naturally cry out to God for grace. The more we consider him, the more we realize that he doesn't owe us anything. And in fact, anything that we do get from him is a gift that we do not deserve Rest of verse 13 and 14. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Now, why does he answer our cry for grace? Why does he pour out grace upon grace in our lives? He does it for our witness, and he does it for our joy. 
He does it that we can tell others about it and that we can be deeply, soul-quenchingly happy in his salvation. Y'all, we have a Savior. We have a substitute. We have a spotless lamb who was slain for Friends, do you see how God has designed this to work? How he's been so, so good to us that the more that we just take that in, the more that we soak in that and realize the deep, deep love that motivated it all, the more it's going to radically change us from the inside out. So let's take a little time Let's slow down. Let's higayon. And let's see love. And let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to slow down, adjust our schedules, our priorities, maybe even adjust the way that it is that we think that we grow as Christians. And let's spend some time contemplating you and meditating upon you and who you are and your goodness and all your wonderful deeds. And would you powerfully change our lives through that very simple process? But would you give us the determination to actually engage in that very simple process? Would you give us the patience to slow down? The patience to sit there for a while and not be productive, at least on the surface, at least outwardly. That you might be productive in us. That you might be accomplishing what only you can accomplish. Oh Lord, help us in these endeavors. We ask in Jesus' name.